So 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Our passage will be verses 17 through 24. So I'll read those now and then uh, we'll consider them as we go into our study here. So Paul writes, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. So again, last week we did look at the thorny issue of divorce uh, in the Corinthian church. Paul, echoing the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, tells Christian couples uh, in verses 10 and 11 to not divorce. And if they've initiated the divorce process based whatever that cultural, whatever that would look in that culture and that society at that time, if they had initiated the divorce process, they should either reconcile their marriage or remain unmarried. In other words, divorce is really, when it all boils down, not an option for believers. Yes, there are exceptions, such as what Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, over sexual immorality or adultery. Uh, if a spouse has committed adultery, then divorce, as Jesus says, is permissible. But that's the point. It is permitted. It is not commanded. The God-honoring path is the tough path of forgiveness and reconciliation. Those really are two different things, right? You know, just because you've forgiven someone doesn't mean you've necessarily reconciled that relationship. Forgiveness really is just sort of I am not going to allow your offense to control and run my life. I'm going to release that to God and, and, and release the burden off of my shoulders. doesn't mean that the relationship has been restored. Those are two different things. So forgiveness and reconciliation. Then Paul goes on in verses 12 through 16 to talk about basically the same thing about mixed marriages. Now mixed, of course, as we said last time in this context, is one in which um, you have more than likely two non-believers in which one of the partners converts to Christianity while the other does not. Because Paul will later on forbid the uh, marrying of a non uh, he will forbid the practice of a Christian marrying a non-Christian. You should remarry in the Lord, he will say later on. We'll get to that when we get to that passage. But here you have probably two unbelievers who are married within the Corinthian church, and one of them comes to faith. Um, and again, in that, concept, in that context, the point remains the same. Do not divorce, particularly if the unbelieving spouse agrees to stay within the marriage. The temptation for the Corinthians was when the per, one, one of the parties, one of the members becomes a Christian, they'll say, well, I shouldn't be associate with a non-Christian, so I need to divorce this person and remarry. And Paul's like, no, not if that person wants to stay in that marriage. And he gives a reason. Because you don't know if that person's going to come to faith. 
The unbelieving spouse is sanctified by being in that union. In other words, the unbelieving spouse is sort of receives the benefits, if you will, of being within the community of grace. They are in the church. They are hearing the gospel proclaimed. They are seeing the means of grace being exercised and practiced. They are living with a believing spouse who, as Peter says of the believing wife, that spouse may be won by the good conduct of the submissive wife. So if the unbelieving spouse wants to stay in the marriage, then don't divorce. And then he gives an exception to this case. But if the unbelieving spouse abandons you, if the unbelieving spouse looks at your faith and says, that's it, I've had it, I can't stand it anymore, you're driving me nuts with all this Jesus talk, I'm going to abandon you, and he leaves or she leaves, you're not obligated to maintain that marriage. Paul says, you know, he talks about peace. God has called us to peace. And then we finished last week just addressing briefly the topic of abuse because the context of divorce and remarriage that you see here in 1 Corinthians 7 is sort of principles, right? It's a best case scenario. It doesn't necessarily address the topic of abuse. And sometimes some have taken these verses to, uh, in a way that forces an abusee to reconcile with an abuser even though that relationship hasn't come to a healthy point. So the main takeaway for us is not to use this passage to counsel abuse victims to reconcile too soon with their abusers. There's a lot of work that needs to be done in in an abuse case. It's a thorny issue and it needs to be treated very carefully. It can be easy to see the victims as crazy and and the abusers as moral, upright people. That's almost how it's, you know, it seems, right? When a person starts talking about how this person has abused me and then you look at the person, it's like he's a churchgoer, you know, he, he, he works and he's a, you know, he's a Sunday school teacher, all this, you know, he's a moral, he work, he's a pillar in the community, you know, and you see this kind of woman raving about how she's, he, he's abused her. It almost sounds like she's the crazy one and that this guy is the one who's the true victim. But we don't want to fall into the trap of, either blindly believing every ex- uh, accusation or ignoring every accusation. It, it requires great wisdom. It requires great discernment. It requires great compassion and a desire for God's glory. So we need to uh, handle issues of d- abuse very carefully and very, um, really in a submissive sense, seeking the Lord's wisdom in these cases. But... Uh, anyway, that's just the recap. Heading into the passage here this morning, 17 through 24, this passage is sort of like in the middle of chapter 7, so it kind of serves as like a fulcrum in, in this way because it really kind of serves to guide as a principle for everything Paul is saying in this passage. Uh, it can be summarized basically as this, bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. Right? Whatever situation you're in, God has called you to that situation. Prosper in that situation. God has put you there for a purpose. So utilize your gifts. Utilize your time, talent, and treasure to make the most of that situation. Don't try to change your situation because you feel it's not worthy of a Christian or something like that. So Paul will give the principle in verse 17. And then in verses uh, 18 through 20, he'll provide one illustration. Then verses 21 through 24, he'll provide a second illustration to illustrate his point. 
But you're going to be hearing the same themes repeated in this passage because Paul repeats them in this passage. So I just have to kind of go, you know, this is the script I'm following. So I, if Paul repeats it, I'm going to repeat it. So if I sound like I'm repeating myself, blame Paul. Um, he's not here, so you, uh, you have to wait till you get to heaven to blame him. So, verse 17. After dealing with the Corinthians' errant thinking regarding marriage and divorce, Paul feels then the need to sort of give them a guiding principle on how to handle these relationships between marriage, whether you're, you know, whether you're married, whether you're widowed, whether you're single, whether you're married in a mixed marriage or whatever. He gives them a principle, a guiding principle in verse 17 where he says, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. Now that word distributed is interesting because in Greek it's the word meridzo that means to, to divide. But it can also mean to distribute in the sense of sort of scattering. You're distributing amongst, you know, think of the, the parable of the sower. The, 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 the farmer has the seed and he's distributing or sowing or scattering the seed across uh, different paths here. So the idea here is of God sort of sprinkling Christians all over the place, right? Here's God distributing Christians in this situation. Here's God calling people in that situation. Here's God calling people in another situation, in another town, in another place. God is distributing Christians in every walk of life, in every uh, station of life. Whether rich, poor, slave, free, male, female, married, widowed, divorced, he is calling people in every station of life. And that's what that second phrase of that, where he says, where the, as the Lord has called each one, that is the saving call, that is the irresistible call of God. God calls you out of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, and he does so whatever station of life you're in. You are distributed in every walk of life. I think some other translations here that we don't normally use are sort of helpful in understanding the thrust of this principle. So the Christian Standard Bible reads, Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. Or the New International Version reads, Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. Or the New Living Translation, each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. So all of those translations are kind of getting at this idea of blooming where you're planted. Right? If God plants you in this situation, bloom there. If God plants you in that situation, bloom there. Now, in the Corinthian context, this, doesn't, this means don't seek to divorce your husband or wife just because you're a believer and he or she is not. Or don't seek to divorce your husband or wife even as both Christians because you feel that the idea of sexual congress is somehow dirty or immoral. God has called you to that situation. So don't seek to change it. The Corinthians were confused because they thought, as you go back to chapter 7, verse 1, they thought their idea of marriage was that it is good for a man not to touch a woman. 
It is good for a man not to have sexual relations for a woman, which is why you have all this confusion about marriage and divorce. In other words, it's like, if it is good not to have sexual relations with my wife, I should probably divorce her and stay single and stay ascetic my entire life. And Paul's like, no, don't seek to change that station that you're in. God has called you to that situation. God has called you as a husband or He's called you as a wife. He has called you to faith in that situation for His good purposes. This mentality of wanting to, you know, I'm a Christian now, I need to change everything, every relationship I'm in, has a mentality that sort of suggests that you know better than God. Right? If God has called you in that station, there's a reason for it. Now, you may not know it at that time, and it may take great wisdom and great discernment to figure out what that reason is. But whatever situation you're in, um, that's where you are to be planted. That's where you're to bloom. God is sovereign, right? And it is by His sovereign will that He calls you to faith by the Holy Spirit for His glory and your good. Now again, it's important, right? You, know, you pay me a lot of money for this, to tell you these things that verse 17 that we're looking at follows verse 16. I, you know, right? <laughs> I get paid the big bucks to tell you these things. Verse 17 follows verse 16. What does verse 16 say? Well, verse 16 says, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So in that situation of the mixed marriage where you have one partner saved and the other one not, Paul is saying, you don't know whether through your godly witness, whether through your uh, trying to obey the Lord, while, with, you know, showing the love of Christ, submitting or, or loving leadership in the marriage, you don't know whether that witness will be what God uses to save the other partner in that marriage. That's why he says in 17, uh, whatever position God has called you in, let that person walk in it. God may have called you in that situation to be the light to your unsaved husband or wife or to lead your children to Christ. That's what he says earlier, right? Because you know the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. This is verse 14. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. They are holy in the sense that they are in a, in a relationship in which you have a believing parent so they are holy in the sense that they are set apart for God's purposes. So you might save your spouse. God may use you to save your spouse. God may use you to save your children. And the same thing applies to any and all life situations. God, by His providence, has scattered you here. He has distributed you here in this particular time and in this particular place. And then He has called you by the irresistible grace of His Holy Spirit to bloom where you're planted. So, as he says, in whatever situation God has called you, in whatever relationship God has placed you, walk in it. Another way to look at it is this. Don't seek to change your current situation just because you came to faith in Christ. Now, that's a principle. Okay, It's not a hard and fast rule in every situation. There's some things you need to change when you come to Christ. right? If you're, if you're a drug addict... <laughs> Don't stay a drug addict when you become, okay? You know, the point is, in, in non-sinful situations, being married to an unbeliever is not a sinful situation. 
right? Being single or widowed is not a sinful situation. Being married to a Christian spouse is certainly not a sinful situation. So Paul is saying just because you come to Christ, you don't necessarily have to change every aspect of your life situation or your, uh, just because you come to Christ. I mean, consider what a moral mess Corinth was. Right? As we heard some weeks ago, right? The, you know, calling someone a Corinthian was basically calling them a slut or a, you know, or a, you know, a very immoral person. It was someone who had very loose morals. How many broken relationships do you think were present in the Corinthian church? <laughs> I mean, just looking at the letter we've seen so far, right? You had one guy having sexual relations with his father's wife. You had other people presumably having sexual relations with prostitutes. So I'm going, to say, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the situation in Corinth was pretty screwed up. It was pretty messed up, okay? Now maybe you're like the Samaritan woman in John 4, right? Maybe you find, there's a Samaritan woman-like person here, right? When Jesus meets the Samaritan woman in John 4, after a little bit of conversation, he says to her, go call, you know, bring your husband here. And she's like, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, right, you don't have a husband. You have had five husbands, and the man you're living with is not your husband. That's kind of like the situation in Corinth. You probably had people like that in Corinth. So suppose you're in a situation which you've been married several times, and you realize after the fact when you come to Christ, I did not divorce those people in a biblical way. And now I'm married to someone else, and that's, you know, according to the Bible, that's adultery. And you know, Paul is saying, when you come to Christ, don't try to undo all of that to try to fix all of that. You've got to live in the situation you're in. So now you and your spouse come to faith. Paul is saying, don't seek to undo your past. Stay in the situation you're in and live for Christ there. God is, if you, God wanted to fix those relationships, he would have called you back then. You're in this relationship now. That's what he's saying. You know, stay where you're planted. Bloom there. So that's the principle. Now Paul is going to illustrate that principle in two ways. The first way is in verses 18 through 20 with the uh, illustration of circumcision. So verse 18. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. So that's, that's the illustration. Now, maybe you're thinking, that's an odd illustration. <laughs> you know, of all the things you could have picked to illustrate this principle, Paul, why circumcision? But is it? I mean, is it an odd thing? I mean, consider all of the ink spilled in the New Testament to talk about circumcision, right? The first serious division in the church, at least the very first recorded church council that we have in the Bible that deals with a big situation in the churches of Jesus Christ was an issue over circumcision, in which is recorded in Acts 15. You had some believers who had come from Jerusalem and they went to the church in Antioch and they were saying, you need to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. And Paul's like, no, that's not what I've been teaching. And there arose a disagreement. So they bring it to Jerusalem and say, let's settle this here. Let's call the church leaders in Jerusalem. Let's call James. Let's call Peter. Let's call all of these people together and let's hash this out. And of course, you realize in chapter 15 of Acts, they do hash it out. 
And they all come into agreement pretty much with Paul's position. And then they write a letter and says, okay, distribute this to all the churches. This is what we have decided on the issue of circumcision. Now, it's unknown whether this was a huge issue in the church of Corinth, but it's a big enough issue that Paul uses this as an illustration. Because I can certainly imagine that there are probably Gentiles who had become Christians and probably thought they needed to be circumcised, and Jews who's, who became Christians and realized that's part of the old ways. I need to undo that. And Paul's point is this. Illustrating the principle. Were you uncircumcised when you came to Christ? Then don't go get circumcised. And vice versa. Were you, uncircum- were you circumcised when you believed? Then don't go and get uncircumcised. Now you think, is that a thing? It's like, yeah, that was a thing. <laughs> I had to look this up, but it was a thing. There was a process in which you can uncircumcise someone. I'm not going to go into the details. Right? You can... <laughs> You can, you can sympathize with me. I'm not going to go into the details in that one. Suffice it to say, there was a process back then that would effectively undo a circumcision. And think about it. Right? If you're a Jew, Jews were persecuted everywhere they went, right? They, that the reason why you have Jews in Europe like this is because they were scattered from where they were originally in Jerusalem and Palestine. So they were probably not looked highly upon. And you might... You know, circumcision is a rather obvious mark if you're looking in the right place. So they might want to try to undo that to sort of blend in, if you will. So Paul says here, you know, illustrating the principle, if you're circumcised, don't get uncircumcised. If you're uncircumcised, don't go get circumcised. And the point of the illustration is in verse 19, where he says, circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Now, if you have New King James, that is what matters is in italics, which means it's added. It's not part of the original text. It's added for um, clarification. But Paul is saying, look, circumcision, uncircumcision, that's not the point. The point is obeying God. The point is keeping the commandments of God. Now, this idea of godly living also, you know, again, this is an illustration. The point, Paul's saying, stay where you were, bloom where you're planted. And this, in the context, of course, is in this chapter 7 of marriage and um, divorce and singleness. So, you know, you can, you can, sub, you can substitute the words circumcision, uncircumcision, with, with this. So let's, let's, read, let's read verse 18 again and say, Was anyone called while married? Then let him not become unmarried. Was anyone called while unmarried? Then let him not become married. Or substitute single or substitute divorce or anything. That's the point Paul is trying to make here. He's, he's exhorting them to godly living. Now it's not that circumcision wasn't a big deal in the churches. It was. Uh, we already know that circumcision, in a sense, is a sacrament of the Old Testament. And it has already been made obsolete coming into the New Testament. Furthermore, consider what Paul says in Romans 2. So keep your finger here. Turn to Romans 2. We covered this uh, some time ago when we looked at Romans. And this is part of Paul's... Um, description or part of Paul's 
um, talking about how, you know, leading up to the gospel, he's giving you the bad news. And he's talking about, you know, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're going to be saved. That's the point he's going to make here. And if you look at verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2, Paul is really hammering the Jewish reader here who is taking pride in their circumcision, taking pride in the fact that they were Jewish. And he's like, look, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Paul's point here is like, look, just because you got the mark doesn't mean anything in a saving way. I mean, it's, it's significant, right? It was a significant rite and ritual in the Old Testament religion, but just having the mark doesn't mean anything. Right? Did circumcision save Ishmael? Did it save Esau? No. Right? What, what mattered for them was godly living. What mattered for them is that the sign that was performed outwardly was not performed on the heart. So Paul continues, right? Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. And this echoes what Paul will say in Galatians. Uh, Galatians 5, verse 6, he says very similar things here. It's actually a couple of passages in Galatians. Chapter 5, verse 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Again, the mark, having the mark, not having the mark, doesn't matter. Faith working through love. Or Galatians 6.15, again, similar thing. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Again, that's talk the idea of the new creation. It's a circumcision of the heart. Um, so that's why Paul says, look, this idea of circumcision isn't important as important as godly living. So anyone can receive the physical mark. I mean, the same thing can be said with baptism, right? Whether you got wet, whether you didn't get wet. What's important is a new creation. What is important is faith working through love. So back to 1 Corinthians 7. Paul then repeats his principle in verse 20. So I said, I'm going to repeat myself because Paul repeats himself. So verse 20, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. And that word remain, that's a familiar word if you've been with us through our study through the Gospel of John. The word remain uh, means to abide. That's how it's usually translated in John's Gospel. The idea is kind of settling in a place, staying there, um, not moving. Paul's point, remain where you were called. Don't seek to change your situation. Married, unmarried, circumcised, uncircumcised, that's not the primary issue. Because a Christian can serve Christ in any of these situations. And that's the important thing. So, bloom where you're planted, right? Where you're planted, that's where you're to bloom. So Paul, making sure that the Corinthians get it. I'm, I'm thinking the Corinthians, no offense to the Corinthians. I don't think we have any Corinthians here. No offense to the Corinthians. They must have been kind of thick. I'm thinking... I mean, Paul feels like the need to really drill this down. It's like, okay, I'm going to give you the principle. I'm going to illustrate the principle. I'm going to repeat the principle. I'm going to illustrate the principle yet again. And then at the end, I'm going to repeat the principle. So, 
So, I mean, I remember, you know, when you were in school and they, were, they taught us how to, you know, to write a term paper or to do a speech. It's like you got you to gotta tell them what you're going to say, you got to say it, and then you got to tell them what you said. Well, Paul's like, tell them what you're going to say, illustrate it, tell them again what you're going to say, illustrate it, tell them again what you're Paul's really hammering this thing home. So he's going to illustrate the principle yet again with the topic of slavery in verse 21. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. Now, we probably need to say a few words about slavery. Um, the Greek there, word there is doulos. It's often translated as servant, slave, bond servant. Um, Paul uses it a lot. In particular, he uses it in reference to himself. He almost, address, he almost starts off, every, I, I didn't look at this, but I'm, I would imagine almost every one of his letters starts off, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Depending on your translation, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. And that word doulos, that's what it means. Now, some translations in English don't use the word slave. They'll use bondservant. If you have ESV has bondservant there, yeah. Now, it's a fine word. It's not a bad translation. But I think that might be colored based on the fact that we're in America and we have a particular issue with slavery in America, or at least had a particular issue with slavery in America. It's considered America's original sin and all that. Um, the slavery spoken of here in 1 Corinthians 7 is not American chattel slavery. So let's just get that off the table. That's what the American form of slavery was back in the 18th and 19th century. And it wasn't, com- it wasn't uncommon to just, it wasn't common, I should, should say, just to the Americans. It was practiced everywhere, right? The entire colonialization of the Europeans of Africa, you know, sort of, you know, came up with this idea of chattel slavery. They were not looked at as people. So they were treated as, you know, sort of a higher form of animal, if you will. Now, that's not typically what you have here in the New Testament. doesn't mean that there wasn't some chattel slavery in the, in, in the ancient world, but the most common form of slavery that you see in the ancient world that is uh, reflected in the scriptures is sort of like a, an indentured servitude. So if you needed to work off a debt, you could sell yourself into slavery. If you were a captured... Um, member of a nation that was conquered, let's say the Romans would conquer a bunch of nations, they would bring the people back and work as slaves. Now, slaves had some rights. They would get paid something. They can actually work and work for their freedom. As we will, that's why Paul says, if you can obtain your freedom, then, then do so. If an opportunity arises to obtain your freedom, take advantage of it. But this type of slavery that is practiced here is Kind of an employment. <laughs> I mean, kind of an employment without any workers' rights or eight-day work week or 40-hour work week or overtime pay. None of that. You know, you know, but it was a type of employment. Now, again, Paul's advice here to the slaves who were called is do not be concerned about it. <laughs> if you were called as a slave, don't worry about it. Don't, don't worry your mind about it. Again, in other words, becoming a Christian is not a license to create social upheaval. I find it amazing that we have four Gospels that record the life and work and ministry of Jesus Christ, and in all four Gospels, not one single word does Jesus say about slavery. If Jesus wanted to say slavery is evil, he could have said it, right? Not once does he call for social upheaval, not once does he... um, 
call to change all the social norms. That's not what Jesus was about. Not a single call for social justice. Jesus is not a social justice warrior. It's not in the scriptures. So why does Paul say do not be concerned about it? Because the idea, again, is even as a slave, you could serve God, right? Even as a slave, you could serve Christ. Flip over to Ephesians 6. Because Paul will say this in, another con- in, in, you know, in the context of house slaves. Often when you get to Ephesians 5, it talks about the household rules or the household code or whatever. And it talks about husbands, wives, children, and then you see slaves or servants. Again, this idea that they, were, they took part in the home. They were sort of indentured servants in the home. And in uh, Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8, again, you know, the, the, the overriding principle is chapter 5, verse 21, where he, Paul calls you know, each to submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. Then he goes on to wives and husbands. He goes on to children and parents. And then in verse 5 of chapter 6, bondservants. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers. In other words, don't, don't look busy when the master's looking. <laughs> right? If, you're in a, if you ever worked in a corporate setting and you're in your office and you're working and it's like you might be you know, fiddling on the internet and then your boss walks by, you shut off, you put on the screensaver and you start, you know, that, that's the idea of you know, eye service and, as men pleasers. But as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing services to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And then Paul repeats this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. It's a, it's a similar um, thing here. Wives, husbands, children, parents, bondservants. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. In other words, if you're a slave, serve your master with, with joy, because you're not really serving your master in this context, you're serving the Lord. Being a slave is no impediment from serving the Lord. Again, bloom where you're planted. But Paul does add in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21, or 22. Sorry, no, 21, sorry. But if you can be made free, rather use it. So again, being a Christian uh, can work within a slave-master relationship. That much is clear. But if there's an opportunity that arises where you can become free, then Paul says, go ahead and pursue it. There's nothing wrong with that. Again, this is not a call to revolution. <laughs> Let's, yeah, workers of the world unite. This is not a Marxist call to revolution. Paul's like, if within the context of whatever you're serving, you can obtain your freedom, go ahead and do it. It is not wrong. And then verse 22. Uh, this is a great verse as Paul continues in verse 22. For he who is called is the Lord's, 
for he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. This is the great truth of the gospel, right? The upside down uh, ways of how, how it turns the ways of the world upside down, the gospel does that. While you may be a slave according to the world, while you may be a servant of somebody, in Christ, Paul says, you're free. You're free from sin's power. You're free from sin's guilt. One day you will be free from sin's presence. As Jesus says in John 8.36, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Conversely, if you are called as a freeman, guess what? You're the Lord's slave. That's this upside-down way of looking at things, right? Freedom in the Lord is not freedom to sin, but freedom to follow the Lord. As Peter will say in his first epistle, yet not using your liberty, liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. In other words, if you're a slave in Christ, you're in a sense, you're free, because in Christ you're free. And if you're a freeman in Christ, you're, you're a servant to Christ. You, you use your liberty to serve the, the Lord. That's the point Paul is making here. And then Paul concludes his thought in verses 23-24, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. And then he repeats the principle yet again. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. So don't worry about being slave. Don't worry about being free because you were bought at a price. Jesus redeemed you. That's the gospel. He redeemed you with his precious blood. So you're not your own. You were bought at a price. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to the Lord. And Paul says here, do not become slaves of men. Slavery, in a sense, is not the problem per se. It's to whom you're a slave. And as a Christian, you could be a slave to a human master as long as you realize uh, you really serve Christ in that context. And similarly, as a freeman, it's so easy to enslave yourself to so many things. You have to remember that you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Do not become slaves of this world. Do not allow yourself to, be, to fall into the trap of slavery to this world. You were bought with a price. And then he continues again, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. That's the principle Paul expounds in this passage. The idea of blooming where you're planted. Do not seek necessarily to change the situation you're in because God has called you that situation. And God can use you in that situation for His glory and for our good.